behold the works of the Lord. Oh, he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. So behold our God. Father, as we come to you this morning and we look to your word and we see that you are the majestic king above all kings and that you have set your glory above the heavens, what can we say but behold our God? So would you give us eyes to see Would you give us ears to hear? And as we come, would you give us humility to bow before you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Would you open our eyes to see the glory of your Son? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, we are going to look at Psalm chapter 8, and we are in kind of this in-between time while we wait to get into our new building and start a new sermon series there, so we are working through some psalms in the meantime, which is a good place to be. And for those of you that have looked ahead, you know that Psalm 8 is only nine verses long. It's pretty short. And so maybe you said, oh, good. There's no way he can stretch this into 40 minutes. And to those of you who thought that, I have two words for you. Challenge accepted. (laughs) So we are going to look at Psalm 8. And if you like a little bit of structure and kind of to know where we're going, we are going to see Psalm 8 in terms of a promise that is given to us. And then we're going to see a problem with Psalm 8. And then we're going to look into the New Testament and see the solution to that problem. So we're going to look at Psalm 8, we're going to see a problem with Psalm 8, and then we're going to see the solution to that problem. So if you haven't done so already, please open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8, and we will begin to work through. So let's read together, starting in verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, 
the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, majestic is a word that you may not be overly familiar with nowadays. It is a royal and exalting word. It's used only a handful of times in the Bible. But I want to take just a couple of minutes at the outset to show you a few places where it's used so that you can kind of get an idea of how the biblical writers use this word to show what David is driving at when he says, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. Why did he pick that word instead of using any other word that he could have used as a descripting word for God? Listen as I read from Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders among the people? Or from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 15. Speaking of the nation of Israel, the Lord says, Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, referring to the events of the transfiguration, which he was a witness to, For when he received, when Christ received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So you get this idea that when David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, what he is saying is how great, how exalted, how high, how set apart is your name in all the earth. But what's in a name? Well, the Bible tells us that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and they are saved. The Bible tells us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that when David says at the opening of this psalm, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, we would do well to pay attention. And we're going to find out why he uses this term as we continue. To prove this, to prove the majesty, the royalty, the worth of God, what has he done? What does the text tell us that he has done? He has set his glory above the heavens, on display, as it were. And I think this is very significant, even the way that this is worded here. No one else has done this. Look at this. You, David says, have set your glory above the heavens. No one adds glory to God. No one makes him more glorious by their worship or by their praise, or by their sacrifices, or by their holy living. He is God. Majestic in holiness, glorious in all the world. One of my favorite chapters in the book, The Attributes of God, by A.W. Pink, is the chapter on the solitary nature of God. He is alone in his attributes, meaning nobody adds to him. 
No one adds glory to him. We don't increase the glorious nature of God by what we bring to him in our worship. He is glorious. So when we read this in this text, that you have set your glory above the heavens, it means that he has done it. We don't add to that. He is God. Which is why I think verses 1 and 2 are very closely tied together. Read verse 2 with me. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, why put this verse here? If you were writing the psalm, would you, would you start talking about babies right after this majestic, declarative, kind of kingly verse? Well, it depends on what you're trying to communicate, right? I think the main point of putting these two verses, one and two, right next to each other is something that the biblical writers do all the time, and I think it is contrast. David opens his psalm with this majestic, kingly language describing the power and the might and the majesty and the glory of God. And then what would be the furthest thing from mighty king? Baby. At least in just general literary terms. A helpless baby. So what's the point of this contrasting illustration? I think we're helped with the answer here in verse 2. When he says, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. The point is that God is doing what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians that Aaron just read a couple minutes ago. He is using the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He is God. He doesn't need to use any sort of means to accomplish his purpose. He does this to silence his foes. He can just simply do it. He could just snap his figurative fingers and do it. He doesn't need to use anything. But he does to prove a point. He uses the weak things, and not only just the weak things, but the most weak you see, it depends not upon the strength of the instrument God uses, but on the strength of God himself. And I think we need to be reminded of that sometimes because we get this idea in our minds that we need to kind of clean ourselves up and we need to do a few more reps in the spiritual gym before God can really, really use us. We need to, we need to get ready. We need to condition ourselves. And now there, of course, is a, there's a time to be prepared in season and out of season and be ready to give a defense and there's all those kinds of things. But God delights to use the weak things of the world to prove that he is the one who is strong. If in the Bible we had track record of God using powerful and strong people to, pr to prove his purposes, that would be a different story. But we don't. What do we have in Scripture? We have track record of God using weak, powerless failures to, to carry out his purposes. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, he establishes strength. Why? Because that's how he gets the most glory. If you look really good, you get the glory. If God looks really good, 
he gets the glory. And that's what all of the world is about, or should be about. Seldom is it that way. You remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 147. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, those who hope in his steadfast love. Remember that. Remember that. This is why I think we see these two verses together here. We see the strength, the royal majesty of God in verse 1, along with the glory that he has set high in the heavens that is out of our reach. We don't attain it. That's God's. And then we see in verse 2 this contrast of humility or condescension in him establishing strength out of the mouth of babies and infants. And even now, if you know your Bible, you should be thinking of another instance where royalty comes down and condescends and crushes the enemy, not in an act of strength, but an act of weakness and humility. Right? We see pictures in Scripture and foreshadows and tellings of what's coming. So keep that in the back of your mind. Let's move on to verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So again, we are confronted with a contrast. Only this time, maybe I'm reading a little bit into this, but I think there's a little bit of sarcasm thrown in here. David says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers. Do you have any idea how absolutely huge the universe is? Let me give you a little bit of facts, just in case you slept through astronomy when you were in high school. For those of you that don't know, we live on planet Earth. Just going to let that sink in for a second. Earth is part of the galaxy known as, hang on, I brought it, the Milky Way. Brad, that's for you. Pays to sit in the front row. Now, if you go up to the North Shore, as we're going to do in a week or so, and you go up and you look at night, you will see thousands and thousands of stars. Around here, there's so much light pollution and cities and whatever. You can see a few, but you get out away from the lights and you will see stars like it's crazy. Right? You've been, you've been where it's really dark and you can see way more than you can see around here. Well, within the Milky Way alone, there are an estimated 300 billion stars. And there are an estimated 100 billion planets in the Milky Way galaxy. I mean, these are ridiculous figures. It sounds like I'm making it up. I didn't, I promise. It is so large. This is just the, just the Milky Way galaxy. It is so big, they have to measure it by light years. If you were to travel across the Milky Way galaxy, it would take you just under 200,000 light years to travel from one side of it to the other. There are... Two 
trillion galaxies in the observable universe. And David says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers. What in the world? All of that made by... Obviously, this is figurative language. But the, the point is, He's telling us that it took very little effort for God to do this. When we read this, we are are supposed to get the idea that God is very, very big and we are very small. If the known universe is vast beyond our imagination and God created it by his fingertips, what must he be like? Majestic. That's the word David uses. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. So we read this here in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, (laughs) you just hear him snickering when he writes this. And then in verse 4, we get this jolting contrast. What is man? Two trillion galaxies? And what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. In other words, compared to the glory and the majesty of you, God, compared to all of your creative power in fashioning the heavens and displaying your glory for us and for everyone to see, compared to all of that, what am I? Now let's look at what it means to be crowned with glory and honor, as he says here. It says here in the text, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, without getting too detailed with the words, the word order, I think it is important to note that in the text, it says in verse 5 that you made him man. And I think, obviously, in this psalm, David has creation in mind. He's talking about the heavens, the work of God's fingers. He's talking about the way things were brought forth. And he's going to talk about animals and all this stuff a little bit later in the psalm. And I think David has this act of creation in his mind. We were created by God along with all the other animals and creatures that God made. But unlike any other creature that was created, we as human beings were created in the image of God. And we have something that no other animal has. You know what it is? Nope, not opposable thumbs. Handy, though. It's a soul. God crowned us with glory and honor above everything else in creation by breathing his life into us, and we are embodied souls that will live forever. It is simply amazing. This is why human life is so precious. We're not just animals. 
I absolutely reject the idea that we evolved from some slime. That is a slap in the face of our Creator. There are a lot of voices in the world today telling you where your worth and where your value comes from. And the Bible is here, and I am here to tell you, you are not valuable because of your job. You are not valuable because of how much money you make or because of your friends, because of your retirement or how many kids you have or where you go to school or any of that stuff. You are precious because you were made in the image of God. That's where your value is. Don't let some media person tell you something different. God's word says you are precious because you're made in the image of God. Not only that, keep reading in verses 6 through 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, oxen, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Part of this unique position that mankind is in is that we have been given dominion by God over all other parts of creation. This was established by God in Genesis 1, verse 26. This is why I say that I think David had this creation account in his mind when he's writing this psalm. On the sixth day of creation, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over all the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Yes, even snakes. So part of this crowning is that we as human beings are set over the rest of creation as stewards and rulers. This was part of God's good design to establish order in his creation so that we wouldn't have chaos everywhere and wild animals running everywhere and doing whatever they want. I mean, can you imagine that? That'd be out of control. God values order in his creation. It was also in part to elevate the status of human beings over every other part of God's creation. So I see this crowning with glory and honor as having kind of a twofold significance in bringing order to the created world and also elevating humans above as the crown of God's creation. And I think the reason that David includes sheep and oxen and he kind of goes through this list of all these things is just to emphasize the point that this dominion that we've been given is all-inclusive. There's no part of God's creation that we are not to exercise dominion over. This is made clear, I think, in verse 6 where it says that the Lord has put all things under his feet. There's a really good documentary, if you're into documentaries, by a Christian biologist called The Riot and the Dance. Maybe some of you guys have heard about that. It just looks at God's creation from a Christian perspective from a biologist and looks at creation and kind of what the relationship should look like as believers post-fall, after the fall, how do we interact with God's creation and what's, what's the role and what does that mean to kind of have dominion over things? It's not a word that we really use a whole lot and so it's, it's really good and I, I commend it to you if you're, if you're into that kind of thing. And then verse 9, he ends, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. After all of this creative language and he looks at the heavens and he looks at the creation and he looks at all this stuff what else are you going to say but Lord how exalted are you how majestic are you so basically that's Psalm 8 
And you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, that's great. And uh, if I needed to hitch a team of oxen and put a yoke on them, I'd be really thankful that I can have dominion over these animals right now. But what's the application? And here's where we need to use a principle known as the analogy of faith, which means using Scripture to interpret Scripture. So for the rest of our time together, we are going to use this principle, using Scripture to interpret Scripture, and we are going to look at the New Testament passage that quotes this, and we are going to use it to kind of help in our understanding of what do we do with this? What do we do with this dominion? What do we do with this application of this text? How should we apply this psalm? Because we should. And this is for us. And we need to know what to do with this. Unfortunately, I can't even tell you the name of the person who was most helpful in my understanding of this. Because it was the author of the book of Hebrews. <laughs> and he's anonymous. So would you turn with me to the book of Hebrews? Let's go over to the New Testament. And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2. And the author of the book of Hebrews is going to give us not a different perspective on Psalm 8, but rather we're going to see a deeper and a more profound meaning, I think, than we have just seen. I entitled this message, His Glory and Our Future. And so far, I think we've seen His glory, but not much about our future, or at least not very clearly. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses starting in verse 1. And we'll make some comments. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with honor and glory. So we have here a direct quotation of Psalm 8 in Hebrews 2. With one little change, I don't know if you picked up on that, and then some words of explanation which we'll get to in a minute that will help us understand much more of what's going on back in Psalm 8. So let's take a look, first of all, starting in verse 5. He said, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So we have in view here the new heavens and the new earth, the world to come, the outcome of the Christian's salvation. In other words, God has not handed over rule and authority of his eternal kingdom to angels, which maybe would be a natural assumption to make in the context of Hebrews because they are his ministering spirits according to chapter 1. But in answer to the question, who rules the world to come, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 and says, man. Man rules the world to come, of which we are speaking. 
So you notice that's why I started back in verse 1. He asked the question, or he says in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Don't neglect your great salvation. Don't treat it lightly. Don't ignore this. Why? Because it wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come. What does that mean? You tracking with me? Put this together. Don't ignore your salvation because it wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come. You following yet? What does that have to do with Psalm 8? Put your thinking caps on. Let's come with me. Ready? He uses Psalm 8 as a future-oriented text, and that puts it in a different light. It doesn't change it. It just puts it in a different light, doesn't it? We work through Psalm 8 assuming that it had an immediate context and application, right? And it does. But one thing we need to understand is that many texts of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, have an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment. I said earlier that this quotation in Hebrews has a slight change to it. And we see that in verse 7. Look at verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 2. It says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Back in Psalm 8... It says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You see the difference? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Now, how might adding that phrase for a little while help in our understanding? And here's where it was helpful for me. Here's where the author of Hebrews helped me in my understanding of how this all fits together. Hang with me. If you're lost, this is going to help. It shows the temporary nature of man's humiliation. By humiliation, I mean being made lower than the angels. Let me explain it this way. We were made lower than the angels, but this is not our permanent residence. We have a heavenly kingdom that we are going to. Don't neglect your salvation because it wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come, but it was testified somewhere, what is man? In other words, it was to man that God gave over his eternal kingdom. Don't neglect your salvation. In other words, pay attention to it because it was to man. We have a future, brothers and sisters, and it is not to stay on this world. Being made lower than the angels is a temporary assignment, which is why the writer of Hebrews says he was made for a little while lower than the angels. Meaning, we're not staying here. This is for a little while, but it's not home. Look at the last part of verse 8 for a little bit of explanation. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him... He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Here's the problem. Remember at the beginning of the service, I said we're going to see a promise. We're going to see a problem. Here's the problem. The promise was verse 6 of Psalm chapter 8, which says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Yes, dominion. Well, Here's the problem, which the writer of Hebrews picks up on. 
we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, while everything is in subjection to man on paper, try telling him that. It doesn't look like we subject anything. We get bit by dogs. We get stung by bees. Right? I mean, <laughs> we're subject to disease and sickness and death and illness and suffering. I mean, my goodness, I can't even open my mail without getting a paper cut sometimes. Try telling me that the world is subjected to me. No, it's not. I don't see it, and that's a problem. Because it looks to me like this promise has not come to pass. So what am I supposed to think? That the word of God has failed? Paul would say no. So what are we supposed to do with this? The writer of Hebrews acknowledges this problem. He says, we do not yet see all things in subjection to him, but what do we see? Here comes the solution. Look at verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2. Here's the big turn. But, contrast again. We see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. If that doesn't get you to say amen, I don't know what in the world I can say. I'm going to read that one more time. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Yeah. That's better. There's a problem in the world. Man does not subject anything under his feet. And it looks like the promise of God has failed. And if it were up to man, it would fail. But it's not up to man. We see another, namely Jesus. And here the writer of Hebrews picks up on this language of Psalm 8. And he says that we see Jesus who is crowned with glory and honor and who by the grace of God tasted death for you and for me so that we would not die but we would live and rule and reign with him. And that's why he says, don't neglect the salvation because it wasn't to angels, it was to you that the world is subjected. But not because of you, because of Christ. So don't mess around with this salvation. You can read this psalm. You can read Psalm 8. And you can know that through Christ, it's going to come true. You were made for a little while lower than the angels. But this is not your permanent residence, brothers and sisters. We have a home. We have a home with Christ and because of Christ. Maybe you don't know if you're going there. And if you don't know that, this isn't for you. If you have never put your faith and hope in Christ, you have zero confidence to take hold of this this morning. But you can. You can. 
That's the glory of the gospel. You want this to be true for you? Then reach out and take it. It's not too late. If you're breathing, if you're alive this morning, you can reach out and take hold of this promise. That's the glory of the gospel. So we worked through the psalm. We saw the promise that all things will be given to us. We saw the problem that it just doesn't seem like all things are for us or subjected to us, yet in Christ we know that they will be. So I want to close in prayer. But I want to extend an offer to you. This isn't just something that we do because it's church and we expect that every Sunday we do this. We don't do this every Sunday. But this is such a precious promise that if you are here and you say, I want that. I want to have that hope. I want to have that confidence that someday I'll be with Christ and I'll rule with him. You can have that. You can have that confidence. And I'll be around up here at the front if you want to just talk about that. If you want to pray, I'd love to pray with you love to talk with you. So would you join me and pray? pray with me. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the truth of Psalm 8. Lord, that you have set your glory above the heavens. I'm thankful that you have put it out of our reach, but yet so that we can see it and worship you for it. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is gracious and patient with us. And Lord, by your spirit, would you work this truth into us that what we are unable to do on our own, Christ has done. That we do not yet see everything subjected to us, but we see Christ who suffered and died for us. And Lord, for those who do not yet have saving faith in Christ, work that into them this morning. That they would know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering being conformed to your death. Lord, work faith into our hearts for your name and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.